The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. John, in the fifth chapter, the 43rd verse. The 43rd verse in the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him ye will receive. I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him ye will receive. Now here, as most of you remember, our Lord and Savior is dealing with the, those Jews to whom he was speaking at this point, and who, in spite of what they knew and what had been presented to them, and what he himself had just been saying to them, still persisted in not believing in him, or as he puts it here, still persisted in not receiving him. You remember how this occasion arose. Our Lord had worked a miracle on that man who was sitting at the pool of Bethesda, a man who had been paralyzed in his legs for over 38 years, and yet whom our Lord heals in a second. That was the whole cause of the trouble. Our Lord happened to do that on a Sunday, and these Jews felt, therefore, that he was dishonoring God's day, breaking God's law, and that he was someone who was opposed to God. But he replies saying that he's come from God, and that he's doing God's will, that indeed he is one with God. He claims to be the Son of God, but still they won't listen. So he then goes on, you remember, to give them certain powerful arguments. He presents them with certain pieces of evidence, which would make this thing perfectly clear to them. They had a very high opinion at one time of John the Baptist. Very well, he says, why don't you believe the evidence of John? For John the Baptist had testified concerning him that he is the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the whole world. John testified that he is the Son of God. But he says there is further evidence. The miracles. How can they explain them? Then there is the evidence that God himself has given in such a striking and unmistakable manner. And then there's the evidence of the scriptures. The Old Testament, which they believed in. The Old Testament is full of him. It's pointing forward to him. And he has presented them with all this evidence, but still they don't believe. And so he now is beginning to address them much more directly. He says, you will not come unto me that you may have life. And then he begins to tell them why it is exactly that they are thus refusing to believe in him. Now we've considered a number of the things that he's already said. Here is one. He says, I receive not honor from men. You think, he says, that I just want you to praise me. That isn't what I want at all. 
I don't want you to praise me as if I were but a man. I want you to realize who I am and to give yourselves and your lives to me that I may give you life. Then he tells them another reason is that the love of God is not in them. He says, I know you that ye have not the love of God in you. That's their fundamental trouble. And here now in this statement he goes on still further. Now it's obvious that every one of these particular things that our Lord says to these men is uh, an explanation. Every one of them is true separately. And they are all true also together. Now in the verse that we are looking at this evening, it seems to me that our Lord is taking the two previous things that he's just said, he's conflating them as it were, he's putting them together so that he may present the truth to them in yet another form and in yet another manner. Two things, you see, were the trouble, he says. One is this idea that uh, he is a man who has come seeking honor from men, seeking praise from men. The other is that they haven't the love of God in them. Well, now he says, I'm going to prove that to you. I have come in my Father's name, not in my own name, but in the Father's name. And you don't receive me. You claim that you know the Father and love him. Well, now I've come from him, and you don't receive me. If another man, he says, shall come in his own name, him you will receive. Very well then. Here it is, I say, he's putting it now, the two aspects of this matter in this composite statement, in order that he may put before them and through them put before us something that is of profound significance and importance to us. You notice that our verse can be divided up like this. In this verse, our Lord states a fact. The fact is that they will not receive him. Here he is standing before them. The one who has come in the Father's name. The one who has been sent by God. The one who is an emissary in this world on behalf of God. Here is one who claims to be the second person in the blessed Holy Trinity. He has come entirely to do his father's will. And yet he says, the fact is that you don't receive me. And they didn't, as I'm going to remind you. They cried away with him, crucify him. Not this man. They didn't want him. He's stating a fact. But he is also stating a fact when he says that um, while they do not receive him, they're very ready to receive others. And again, that's nothing but a pure fact. And I'm going to give you evidence to support it. So he states a fact, and then he explains the fact. Now, it is particularly with the explanation that I am concerned this evening. It's the explanation that I want to hold before you. Because here surely is the most striking fact in the whole history of the human race, that the Son of God has been in this world, and yet the world crucified him, and didn't want him. 
Now I say the thing that is before us is the explanation of that. What is it that explains that mankind rejects and refuses the Son of God and his offer of salvation? And is at the same time so ready to receive other men and to listen to them and to laud them? Now, this isn't just a kind of academic or theoretical investigation of this problem that there occurred while our Lord was in this world. It's something I say that the world has been doing from the very dawn of recorded history. And what makes it so urgent is this. This is the whole cause of the predicament of the world this very evening. Look at the terrible trouble the world is in. Why is it in this kind of trouble? Did you know, my friend, that if the whole world simply believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and followed him, our problems would vanish like the morning mist. You know there'd be no need for these people to march about and hold their protest meetings about building and making these atomic bombs and hydrogen bombs. If only the whole world believed in Christ, there'd be no need to worry about a possible war. There wouldn't be such a thing. But you see, the world won't listen to him. The world won't turn to him. The world won't follow him. The world won't receive him. It's ready to receive anything but Christ. Hence, its whole problem and predicament this evening. Well, now then I say, the question is, why is the world like that? That's the question our Lord is answering in this verse. If you want it in one word, of course, it's that little word, sin. Sin is the cause of the trouble. Sin is that thing that came in and turned God's perfect world into the world that you and I know. It was paradise before. It's no longer paradise. And what's made the difference is the entry of sin. Well, what does sin do to us? I'm only going to pick out two things tonight that sin does because they're the two things that are emphasized in this verse. Here's the first. Sin fools us and blinds us. What I mean by that is that sin deprives us of wisdom and of understanding and of judgment. That is the most devastating thing about sin. Sin has affected man in the very highest part of his being. And there is nothing higher in man than his judgment, his understanding, his reason. Animals have no judgment. Animals are incapable of reason. The glory of man is that he can think and reason, yes. And the greater the man, the greater is the element of judgment in the man. Now, there are many men who've got good brains. They can absorb facts. They've got good memories. And they can learn. That's all right. That's a very good thing. But, you know, you can have men who've got great knowledge, but no wisdom. Wisdom and judgment are the ultimate test of greatness. Not mere knowledge. That's the sort of blotting paper mind that can just absorb facts and repeat them. That's the sort of gramophone mind, if you like. And the real test of greatness is judgment, understanding. Ability to estimate and to sift and to discriminate. Now that is the highest quality that any man can ever have. That's the very thing that sin attacks. It's the first thing it goes for. And so I say that sin fools us 
and blinds us. Now this is a remarkable thing. If there is one thing that the world prides itself on more than anything else, it is this very quality of judgment, discrimination, and understanding. It is the, particularly the thing on which the modern man prides himself. He's never tired of saying so. He says that everybody who's lived in centuries past, of course, well, they were all right in their age and day and generation, but of course they didn't know what we know. They hadn't our advantages. They hadn't the educational advantages. They were not aware of the scientific discoveries, but now we've got it all, and of course we are now in a position rarely to judge the data all on the table in front of us. And modern man has got judgment and understanding and discrimination. But you know, mankind in sin has always prided itself on that. That it really does know. Now let me give you some instances. Take the Jews of the Old Testament. Indeed, let's start with these very people to whom our Lord was speaking before we go back. Look at these Jews whom our Lord was addressing. Now, what was it they prided themselves on? Well, on this, wasn't it? They thought that they knew God, that they knew what God wanted. They thought they were pleasing God, and they thought they knew all about the will of God. Secondly, they thought that they could detect an imposter when they saw one, and here was one standing before them. Ah, they were not to be taken in by this sort of individual. They were men of discrimination and of understanding, they said to one another, of course. He's annoyed because we don't believe in him, because he just wants to be praised. He's a sort of upstart. Who is this? He's not one of the trained Pharisees. This man is a carpenter from Nazareth, and he makes these exalted claims, and he's very annoyed because we don't fall down at his feet and worship him and receive him. But of course, they say, we are not the sort of people who are taken in by that kind of thing. The rabble might be, but not us. We are the religious people. We are God's people. We know this man's a blasphemer. This man's breaking God's law. He wouldn't have done this miracle on a Sunday. They understand. They're men of judgment. And because of that, they reject him. And they won't receive him. You see the tragedy, don't you? They prided themselves on their understanding, on their knowledge on their ability to judge and particularly to detect an imposter. And here they are failing in the very thing on which they pride themselves so much. The people who are proud of their understanding and judgment don't recognize the Son of God when he's standing before them in human flesh. That's the tragedy. What's the matter with them? They've been blinded by sin. Sin always fools us and blinds us. And it does the two things at the same time. It makes us really blind, but it fools us to think that we are seeing and that we are men of wonderful and exceptional judgment. Now the world, I say, has always done that. You go back to your Old Testament and that's what you'll find everywhere. Just all that going on from century to century. And the world, I say, is still the same. The world thinks that it knows and that it understands, that it's got judgment and that it can choose. 
It believes it knows its greatest and best men and its true benefactors, and it goes after them and it trusts itself to them. And this is the thing that seems to me to constitute the whole essence of the tragedy. It is in the name of knowledge and wisdom and judgment and understanding that the vast majority of people in this country tonight do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and dismiss him and his religion and all he's got to offer. They say, we know. We no longer are going to believe those fairy tales. We know. It is in the name of judgment and knowledge and understanding. They're priding themselves on it. And they're totally unaware of their blindness and of their darkness. Now then, it is just here I say that the world displays the fact that it's fooled and deceived and blinded by sin. Well, how? Well, let's take our Lord's actual terms. The world honors men who come in their own name. He says, if any man will come shall come in his own name, him you will receive. You won't receive me, but if a man shall come in his own name, you expert judges, you builders, you people who understand, you'll fall at his feet and you'll receive him. Now I say that this is something that has always been true of the world. That is what mankind has been doing ever since what happened in the Garden of Eden. Let me give you some illustrations of it. Read the long story of the children of Israel as it's unfolded in the history books and in the books of the prophets. And isn't this what you find? Israel is in trouble. Israel has become weak in a military sense and in every other sense, and a great enemy is threatening to attack her. At last they wake up to the fact that they're in a precarious position, and they don't know what to do. At that moment, two lots of people address them. There are the prophets that are sent by God, but there are other people who also call themselves prophets. What the Bible calls the false prophets. Now, you go back and read the history. And you will find that invariably what happened was just this, that the children of Israel believed the false prophets. They did it every time. They wouldn't listen to the true prophets, but they were very ready indeed to listen to the false prophets. All along the centuries, they kept on doing the same thing. And then when you come on into the New Testament, you find the same. John the Baptist is put to death. The people are confronted by a choice on a famous occasion. There are two prisoners. One is Jesus of Nazareth, another is a man called Barabbas, who was a robber and a murderer. And Pontius Pilate says to the people, well now, you know, it's the custom on this date for me to release any prisoner to you that you may choose for yourself. Which will you have? Will you have Jesus that is called Christ, or will you have Barabbas? And you remember the choice, they said, give us Barabbas. They chose the robber and the murderer, the thief. 
If another shall come in his own name, him ye will receive. And you know they've gone on doing this. Just about the time when Jesus Christ was in this world and after, the Roman emperors decided to announce that they were gods. And they demanded worship of the people. And you know they were given it. The people would say, Caesar is Lord. The great crowd said that. There was a handful of people that wouldn't say it. They were called Christians. But as for the mob and the crowd, they went round Rome shouting and in the other cities the same. Caesar is Lord. They worshipped him as king, as God. They ascribed divine honors unto their emperors. If another shall come in his own name, him he will receive. Did you know that in the second century a man came amongst the Jews and claimed that he was the Messiah? And they crowded after him by the thousand. They did receive him. He was just an imposter. But they crowded after him and went after him. The same happened with Mohammed, as you know. Mohammed comes in his own name and sets himself up and makes his claim. And look at the crowd that went after him. If another shall come in his own name, him ye will receive. But I mustn't keep you. This is really nothing but the whole history of the human race, isn't it? A man like a Napoleon arises and the people are almost ready to worship him. They'll crowd after him. They believe in him. The crowd goes after Napoleon. I, we've lived in an age when we've seen people doing that with a man called Hitler. It was semi-worship. They really did believe in him. They became excited and frantic. They thought it was a great honor to sacrifice their lives for him. People who wouldn't dream of believing in Jesus Christ and the gospel. But they believe in Hitler. And in a Stalin... And men and women are ready to believe in politicians and in men. And to swear by them. And to get excited about them. And to sacrifice for them. And if necessary perchance to die for them. The world is always ready to believe in any man that sets himself up in his own name. And says, am I not wonderful? The world says, yes. The world takes a man at his own evaluation. If a man just stands before the world and says certain things about himself, the world is very ready to listen. Oh, the whole world today is full of this sort of thing. People seem instinctively to believe in quacks and charlatans. They'll believe anything fantastic. It doesn't matter how extravagant the claim. Indeed, the more extravagant, the more likely they are to believe it. Look at the excitement and the adulation that is given to certain people whose names I can't think of at the moment but who are figuring so prominently on the front pages of our papers. They'll pay them these thousands for every week of their activities and the world gets mad about them and excited and infused and carried away. But if any man shall come in his own name, him he will receive. There it is. That is the story of the world. The world is ready to believe the most fantastic and impossible things and claims. Yes, but it's equally true on the other side, isn't it? That the world refuses those who come in God's name. 
I am come in God's in my Father's name, and he received me not. There's nothing new about that. They began doing that at the dawn of history. Did you ever read of a man called Noah? Here was a man sent by God to build an ark and to warn the world that if it didn't amend its ways and repent, the disaster was going to overwhelm it. This man began to preach that, and he went on preaching it 120 years. Did they listen? No, no. They rejected him. They called him a fool. They listened to the contemporary false prophets. And Noah is always rejected. Wasn't it the same in Sodom and Gomorrah? We are told in the New Testament that that man, righteous Lot, vexed his righteous soul at the iniquity of the people. Lot in those cities began to warn them and to say, don't stop, well then overwhelming disaster will overtake you. They didn't listen to Lot, they listened to the others who said all is well. The Lots are rejected. I've already reminded you of the fate of the prophets. Did you notice what our Lord said in those verses that I read to you at the beginning? Why did he speak that parable of those workers in the vineyard? Well, they realized at last that he was addressing them directly. He says, you've always been like this. God, my heavenly Father, has sent you servant after servant, and you've killed them one by one. He sent with you and pleaded with you for your own good, but you've killed his servants, and now he sent me. He says, you say that if you were alive in the days of your fathers, you wouldn't have behaved like that and you wouldn't have killed the prophets, but you're they're still their children. You're doing the same thing now and you don't realize it by your rejection of me. You're proving that you're in the same mentality and have the same mind. You're always the same. That's the story. John the Baptist, I say, was put to death. But here at last comes the very Son of God. God incarnate. What does he do? He works miracles. He heals the sick. He helps all who are in trouble and in distress. He never did anybody any harm. He offered a wonderful gospel. And yet what did they do to him? They criticized him. They cast it, picked up stones and threw them at him. They conspired together to get rid of him. They engineered his death and the mob cried away with him. Crucify him! My friends, I'm giving you history this evening. This is what the world has always done. Why does it do this sort of thing? And it didn't stop at that. They gave his followers, his disciples, his apostles... Exactly the same treatment as they gave him. At the very beginning they killed James, the brother of John. They arrested Peter. Peter's eventually put to death. Paul was put to death. One after another, these apostles, they're thrown to death. What are they doing? Simply preaching the gospel. Doing no harm to anybody. Telling men of God's love and of what is possible to them if they but believe in Christ. And the world shows its teeth and hates them and rejects them. Every man who comes in God's name is disliked. There they are, the apostles, and not only the apostles, but the common people. The story of the martyrs, have you ever read it? Those common people who were thrown to the lions in the arena. What had they done? They'd done nothing. 
They were the most peace-loving and peaceable people in all the countries, and yet they were persecuted, they were spat upon, they were killed. And that has gone on throughout the running centuries. The Protestant fathers were persecuted and put to death. The Puritans had the same treatment. The early Methodists, John Wesley, Whitfield and others were stoned. Mobs attacked them and molested them. They hated them and they refused them. While at the same time they were ready to listen to any imposter or politician that set himself up before them. That's the story of the human race. I think you cannot dispute it. And here our Lord prophesies that it's going to be like that right away through, even to the very end. I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him he will receive. They did, I say, in the second century. They've done so since. Antichrists arose and they believed them. And we are told that a great final Antichrist is coming. And the whole world will run after him. The beast that will arise. The whole world will run after him. After the beast and his image. They'll draw the world after them. The Christ is rejected. The Antichrists are received. There is a day coming, says Jesus Christ in Matthew 24, when some of these antichrists and impostors are going to appear and they'll perform such marvelous lying miracles, so full of deceit shall they be that if it were possible, they would even deceive the very elect themselves. What is the history of the world? I suggest to you that the history of the world is perfectly summarized in these words. Truth forever on the scaffold. Wrong forever on the throne. The world runs after the wrong and enthrones it and gives it its allegiance. Truth is forever on the scaffold. Those who are sent by God receive persecution and rejection and refusal. I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me. Not if another shall come in his own name. You who are so clever, you who are so, so expert, you who have discrimination and judgment and understanding, you who can spot an imposter, what's the truth about you? You're always taken in by the imposter, and you never recognize the truth when it's standing before your eyes. Isn't that the story of the world? The greatest fact of history is the fact, I say, that when the Son of God came into this world, he was crucified and died upon a cross. Oh, the blindness of mankind as the result of sin. Ah, but there's a second thing. Sin not only blinds us and fools us. Sin, obviously, at the same time, depraves us. And, of course, it is our depravity that ultimately accounts for our blindness. 
You see, the explanation of the blindness and the lack of judgment is not intellectual at all. It is always purely moral. And it is because sin depraves us in a moral sense that our judgment is vitiated. You see, we like to think that we are pure intellects, don't we? And that with our marvelous brains we take an objective view. Do you know there's no such thing as an objective view? People talk about free thought. There is no such thing as free thought. Man is a creature of prejudices. Where do they come from? From the depths of his nature, from his moral being. And we see things in order to suit our own book. We manipulate the evidence. We are prejudiced. We don't see things as they are. Now let me explain what I mean by that. Sin, I say, depraves our moral nature. And that is why our judgment is put out of gear. And that is why we always believe the imposter. And that is why we don't believe the truth. There is only one reason why the world has behaved like this throughout. Crucifying and killing the true prophets. Worshipping and praising the false prophets. Here's the explanation. The false prophets always tell us exactly what we want to be told. And that's why we believe them. Now, we think we're intellectual, of course. Great men, this we say, great brain. This is a great philosopher, this. He writes a book, Why I Am Not a Christian. Ah, this is pure intellect. Is it? Is it pure intellect? The false prophet, I say, tells us exactly what we want to hear and what we like to hear. What's that? Well, the false prophet always flatters us. The false prophet tells us that we are not so bad after all. The false prophet tells us that we have it in us to make this world perfect and to put ourselves and everybody and everything else right. That we can do it if we only put our backs into it. The Bible says the false prophet talks about what it describes as sin. It's an insult to human nature. Of course not. We are not like that. Not long since we were in the woods. We were just climbing trees. We've just come out of that sort of thing and our brains are beginning to develop. It's only a question of time. We've got it in us. Give us time and then we'll make a perfect world and we'll inhabit it as perfect men. We've got the ability. We've got it in us. And indeed, they say, if you only educate us properly, well, then we'll already do it. We needn't wait so long after all. It's a question of knowledge and of being told the right thing to do. That's why we believe the false prophet, you see. The false prophet comes to us. He's not an utter fool, of course. He says... Ah, oh, well, there is something wrong. If the false prophet came and told us there was nothing wrong, of course we wouldn't believe him because we know there's a great deal wrong. Ah, oh, but this is the genius of the false prophet. He says, of course there's something wrong. But it's very little. He says, peace, peace. When there is no peace. You remember it before the last war, don't you? We liked the people who said there wasn't going to be a war. We thought they were really good. A man said there's going to be a war. We said this man's a warmonger. You can't work with him. He's impossible. 
That's what they said. Now, why did we why did we believe the false prophets? Well, we didn't want a war, you see, and they were telling us exactly what we wanted to hear. So we believed them. You see, it's all a matter of moral condition. It's pride. Peace, peace. When there is no peace, they comfort us, they praise us, and so they fool us. That's one aspect of this. But then, unless coupled with this, there is in men, as the result of sin, a profound hatred of God. Oh, I'm not going to stop with this. We've already dealt with it when we were looking at verse 42, where our Lord said, I know you, that you have not the love of God in you. Indeed, that's a, a form of lightities. Uh, what he really means is that they hate God. The Apostle Paul puts that in a phrase, and I leave it at this. The natural mind is enmity against God, is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Man by nature feels that God is against him, and he, he hates God. That's why, as I'm never tired of pointing out, if he reads in a newspaper that somebody, some scientist or other, seems to suggest that he's proved there isn't a God, they'll believe him every time. Why? Well, they don't want a God. They hate God. God's a nuisance. It isn't intellect. It's just that we don't like God, and therefore we're ready to believe anybody who tells us there isn't a God. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. And we like him because he says what we really feel ourselves. And then there's another thing. As the result of sin, we all love evil. And we love sin. Now, my friends, let's face this. The Lord Jesus Christ said, This is the condemnation that light is come into the world. And men loved darkness rather than light. Because their deeds were evil. I'm trying to explain to you why the people have always killed the true prophets. Why they crucified Christ and murdered the apostles. They love darkness. They love sin. They like the things that the world is so fond of. We all like them by nature. There is something very pleasant about the prohibited fruit. But this gospel tells us to leave them. It condemns them. And we hate the, the true prophets because they tell us. Man in sin loves evil. And he is ready to believe anybody that tells him that that's all right. We say there's something rather wonderful about that man after all, isn't there? Look at him. Jovial, happy, good fellow. Good fellow. Drunkard perhaps, but good fellow. Pleasant. Yes, he'll treat you all right. Good fellow this, though his wife and children may be suffering. Good fellow, we say. That's loving evil. But even worse than the love of evil is the hatred of the light. Men love darkness and hate the light because their deeds are evil. That's why they will not receive Christ but will receive another that comes in his own name. Why won't they receive Christ? Well, I'll tell you. 
By nature, we all hate the light and we hate the truth because it tells us certain things we don't want to hear and we don't like them. It tells us the truth about ourselves. Unlike the false prophet that tells us that we are good fellows and that there's not very much wrong with us, the Bible, the true prophet Jesus Christ, tells us that we are sinful that we are depraved, that we are vile, that we are rotten. The true prophet tells us that the trouble is in us ourselves. It isn't somebody else. It isn't in surroundings. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves that we are underlings. We don't like that, do we? We hate the light, but that's the truth about us. The Bible tells us the simple, plain truth about us and our lives. It tells us that in us there is no good thing at all, that we are selfish and self-centered, governed by lust and passion and desire and malice and spite and hatred. Is that sort of thing popular? Of course it isn't. We hate it because we know it's true, but we don't want to hear it. The other says, no, no, that isn't true of you, and we'll believe him. The Bible says that we are all under condemnation and under the wrath of God. The Bible tells us that we are so fallen and steeped in sin that we cannot save ourselves. And then it goes on to tell us what we must do and what we must believe. What does it say? Repent. That's what the true prophets were telling the children of Israel. Stop, they said. Turn away from all that. Come back to God. Burn your idols. Get rid of them. Stop committing those evil practices. Come back to the Ten Commandments. Come back to the moral law. And God will bless you. Repent. Rend your hearts and not your garments. And they crucified them. They stoned them to death. They hated them. And John the Baptist and Christ preached the same message. And they received the same fate. And all who've ever preached it ever since have had the same fate. The world hates this message of repentance. But perhaps the point at which it hates this message most of all is this. When it comes to us and tells us that we are so sinful and so fallen and so weak and so helpless, that we can do nothing at all about ourselves. But that the Son of God came into the world to do it for us. That we're all paupers. We've all got nothing at all. And that if it were not that the Son of God had come into the world and had died on the cross on Calvary and have his holy body broken and his blood shed that our sins might receive the punishment they justly deserved. That there's no hope for one of us. We hate that. We say that's insulting. But that's what the gospel says. That's what Christ says. He said, I am not come to be ministered unto but to minister and to give my life a ransom for many. And the world hated him for it. And then, of course, it goes on to say that we are so hopeless that we can't even be improved. It says you must be born again. Education can't do it. You need a new nature, a new life, a new beginning, a new start, says the gospel. 
You really are so depraved that you want the Creator to create you and you. You must be born again. We hate such a message because we believe we've got it in us to put ourselves right. And then the gospel goes on and calls us to a kind of life that we must live. If any man will be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. It means that you stop advertising yourself. You stop living for yourself. You deny yourself. You become a fool for Christ's sake. You take up a cross. You follow him. You forsake the world and its way. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye and the pride of life. You go in for holiness and truth and righteousness and sanctification. No, no, says the world, that's narrow. That's cramped, it's confined. I can't stand it. I want a big life, a great life. That's narrow. But that's the life to which he calls you. The life of sin and evil says that these are fairy tales, that this is impossible, that it's fantastic and that it's insulting. Yet they believe any extravagant claim made by a man and refuse to believe that God can create anew and that the Son of God by dying can save us. That's why the world rejects the Savior and receives and believes in the imposter. Oh, what depravity! But I end by putting it like this to you. Can't you see that what sin does to us is to so blunt all our higher and nobler and better faculties to this extent? That they make us incapable of recognizing the Son of God when he comes to us. That they make us incapable of seeing and understanding and being moved to the vitals of our being by his glory. But above all, by his love. Oh, this is the tragedy of men in sin. That love so amazing, so divine, means nothing to him. He reviles the blood of Christ. Christ is but an oath and a curse to him. He doesn't see the majesty and the glory as these Jews didn't. He isn't melted by the love. He doesn't see the broken body and the shed blood and say, Can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love. And can it be that thou my God hast died for me? It doesn't say that. It sees nothing in it. That's the tragedy of men in sin. So blind and so depraved. But he can't see and be captured and enraptured by the most glorious thing that has ever happened in this world. That's the explanation.
I am come in my Father's name, and you receive me not. Another shall come in his own name, and him ye will receive. My dear friend, have you received Christ? Have you received him as the Son of God? Have you received him as the Savior of your soul? Have you looked at him? Have you seen him on the cross? And have you fallen at his feet and said, My Lord and my God? If you haven't, you know there's only one reason for it. The God of this world has so blinded you. But you see nothing in it. Oh, I beseech you, awaken. Realize the depravity, the blindness, the tragedy, the awful condition. And turn to him and ask him to have mercy upon you. Ask him to receive you. And to give you that new life and that new nature and that new understanding that will make you hate the darkness and love the light, reject the false prophets, and glory in God's prophets, God's only begotten Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What a terrible thing to be blind to him and all his glory and his love. Ask God to have mercy upon you and to deliver you and to work this miracle of regeneration in you. Ask him and he will do it even here and now. Amen.